We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Arguably, the people who understand Israel least are often American diaspora Jews because the whole equation is like totally changed in a way they don't quite understand. Part of that problem is that the Israelis we're talking about don't give a damn about what the Jews of the Upper West, I think, about them. I've asked some of my liberal Israeli friends, so what are you going to do about the settlements and, and the West Bank? And they, have, and they have no cogent answer, right? What they're sort of belatedly realizing is like, no shit, the two-state solution is dead. When I was at Goldman Sachs, long story, I was a quant there. There used to be a joke, if you picked up some piece of market news super late, the retort would be, oh, did you know Queen Victoria died? Or did you hear that the Beatles broke up, right? Nice. So it's like, oh, the two-state solution is dead, is it? Oh, wow, you're, you're just getting so, this in 2023. So, so clap, yeah. There's <laughs> a reason why, why, why all these, why we're seeing like precipitous decline in, in, in childbirth in all these countries that, you know, purport these so-called, you know, virtuous progressive agendas because they're actually death cults. They're not open to the idea of propagating the species. It's not an interest in them. In fact, it's a liability. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. Liel, in, in the Jewish world of letters, you, you need no introduction, since you're like one of the most sort of popular and polarizing writers probably in, in the a Jewish big, world. I'm a big, a big Jew. He's a, he's a big Jew. <laughs> really and big I, Jew. I, I've met you. It's it's physically true, and it's also sort of right. li- li- literarily true. Yeah. So Liel writes for Tablet Magazine, but also commentary. I literally, no joke, just got this today. This book, which I'm going to plug, Zionism uh, by Tablet Magazine. So Tablet, for those who aren't familiar with it, um, I, I think Alana, who's its editor, would would very in a very immodest way say it's probably the best publication in America. Which I think, arguably, it's definitely top five. And, with, and should be absolutely question. correct. <laughs> um, but it's it's in my in my mind it's one, it's one of the leading publications of sort of Jewish letters by and large. But they also publish on, on all sorts of themes, not just not just Jewish stuff. Um, I see they're on like a Walter Russell Mead tear recently, which I quite like. He's also in this book, and on the you can't quite see it, but there's a table of contents with a lot of interesting writers <clears throat> about the topic of Zionism, which I think we're going to get into because a lot of things going on in Israel right now, and I think just, um, as there often is, right? Like I've often joked that American imperial privilege is that every external sort of foreign policy question becomes an extension of domestic politics, right? And um, the problem with Israel is that like that model has sort of worked a little bit, but I think it's, it's rapidly breaking down. And in fact, 
arguably the people who understand Israel least are often American diaspora Jews because the whole equation is like totally changed in a way they don't quite understand. And part of that problem is that the Israelis we're talking about don't give a damn about what the Jews of the Upper West, I think, about them. Yeah. Then, Honestly, Antonio, I think we can end the conversation right now. I think you've said everything yeah. that needs to be said. Thank you for having me on. It's awesome. So, yeah, we're here to talk about Israel, um, which, is, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. Uh, I was supposed to go there next week for a Shavuot, but for business reasons, I had to change that. But I still plan on going there this year. <clears throat> but, Leo, I'll shut up at this point. Why don't you – there's a great piece that I actually I tweeted today, which is your tablet piece which I think really gets to the crux. It's, of course, I think it's brilliant because it agrees with my point of view because that's how things work. But I, I think you express it in a much better way than I ever could. I think the, the question at the heart of the matter, which is one of the great tensions in Judaism itself, which is that between universalism and particularism, right? And I think um, you know, one of the pieces that I've been threatening to write for a long time, at, at this point, it's probably not even worth doing, is that I think one of the biggest incomprehensions uh, between like the, the greater Western world and, and Judaism, in fact, you mentioned this in the essay that I just read in your Zionism thing, is about how the secular liberal world assumes universalism is just a global, a global moral virtue. And part of why they hate Israel is the fact that it kind of doesn't accept that. Um, or as I've heard somebody else say, I won't say his name, but you mentioned him in your essay, so you can figure out who it is. Um, you know, the Israelis refuse to be bugmen. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. And the bugmen are very unhappy about that. <laughs> and so, but let's get into it. Leal. Um, maybe, yeah, start wherever you want to start on the Israel question. Okay, so, uh, you know, we're talking about Israel, so it, it really behooves us to start a hundred and something years back. Here, here's a really interesting question. You know, we walk around, and I, I do reference this also in the intro to my book, we walk around, and if you ask Israelis, uh, and, you know, I think still a large portion of American Jews, how many of you define yourself as Zionists? Something, you know, very close to a, an absolute majority would say, yeah, we are. And then the second question is like, okay, great. So define what it is this thing is that you purport to believe in. And most Jews would say something like, well, you know, Zionism is a um, 19th century uh, movement to establish a Jewish homeland in the, you know, land of Israel. By those standards, uh, you know, that mission has been accomplished 75 years ago. And it's kind of preposterous that we would still have this name, Zionism, because if you ask, we're now, I think, 183 years after the Risorgimento. And if you ask Italians, you know, how many of you are still uh, defining themselves as Garibaldists? You know, how many of you are really into Garibaldi's mission to unite the different, you know, uh, kingdoms of Italy into one nation? They would look at you like, you know, you fell off the moon. It's a preposterous question. And yet here we are still talking about Zionism, which I think tells us that Zionism isn't just this national homeland movement. It's really kind of a weird spiritual religious extension of, of some stuff that Judaism has been talking about ever since Jews were forcefully exiled from the land of Israel, meaning not just establishing a state, but talking about what kind of state you want to establish. And I think a lot of the discussion you're seeing in Israel, and I'm using the word discussion very lightly here because it's demonstrations and it's becoming really, really, uh, you know, tense and taut and ugly. But I think a lot of that discussion isn't about this reform or another, this legislation or another, not even this candidate or another, but really about what type of state you would like to see. And as I write in my essay, very, very briefly, it comes down to two warring camps, people who want a state for the Jews, which is basically like, you know, New York, Paris, or Berlin on the Mediterranean, only with slightly more Jews. Uh, or people who want the Jewish state, which is a profoundly different thing. Yeah, and it's funny, you uh, that's a great subtitle to your piece, which summarizes almost on the line. You yourself recently came back from Israel, and the we want a country like every other. You were talking to one of the activists of all these protests, which, by the way, are enormous. If you haven't seen it, 
you know, go Google Israel and it, it, it fills up. I, I've been actually told by Israelis, you know, if when you come to Israel, you should join the protest. Right. Um, and, the, and, the, and the protesters said, yeah, we want to be a country like any other, like France or Sweden or whatever, right? It's mm -hmm. the idea that we should be a liberal style, secular nation state like every other European country and not the Jewish state, which is a very different conception of it. Um, yeah, that's the... Can and you then, unpack... Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was about to say, the, what also adds a little bit of spice to it, and I know at this point we're going so fast it might be confusing, is that there's also like a racial or ethnic component to it that the sort of flavor of Jews that are often on the right, which are on the religious side, are Mizrahi or Sephardic Jews. For, and that, that, that's, I think it's a really important part of it. So, so, so to unpack a little, as our friends in yeah. academia like to say, uh, you know, the modern state of Israel was established for the most part by uh, Ashkenazi Jews, meaning Jews who came from, uh, you know, Western and Eastern European countries who really dreamt, and you could see this just by walking around Tel Aviv and seeing, you know, the style of most of the architecture, they were literally and figuratively trying to build Berlin on the Mediterranean. You know, they were building these beautiful Bauhaus buildings. Tel Aviv is the Bauhaus capital of the world. And you walk around and you understand that these people said, well, you know, they, they kicked us out of, uh, out of the other promised land. So we would go to this dump on the Mediterranean and we would continue with our, with our opera and our science and our business and all the things that are to us the greater good. At some point, and mainly for demographic reasons, in the 50s, late 40s, early 50s, they bring about uh, a whole host of Mizrahi Jews, Jews who come from places like Egypt and Syria and Lebanon and Iraq and Iran. Uh, and these are cats with a totally different sensibility. For the most part, they're much more traditional. For the most part, they are deeply connected to ideas like you know, faith, family, freedom. Uh, and they're also from the neighborhood. So they have absolutely no illusions of, of what their neighboring countries feel and think about them because they've lived among Arabs for, you know, most of their lives. Uh, and traditionally- Leo, can I pause, can I pause there for one second? Because sure. you gloss over a lot there. Just because, uh, you know, recently was Nakba Day celebrated by a certain congresswoman in, in, in the United States. Mm -hmm. It might be worth focusing a little bit. Why is it that all the Jews in all these Arab countries basically fled their their countries and came to Israel. Why, oh, because their homes were burned and their synagogues were right. torched and they were beaten and, and, and massacred. Uh, and so they had no other choice. And luckily, unlike the European Jews who did not have a strong state of Israel, uh, when the Farhud or, or kind of like riots or pogroms to drive Mizrahi Jews out of Arab countries were happening, there was a strong uh, yet young uh, but able Jewish state that could take them all in. Uh, and so here come these people, and this is, I think, an often undiscussed uh, story of social justice in, in, in the land of Israel. Uh, for the most part, you know, the, uh, the, the hegemony, uh, I'm, I'm loving using these terms, by the way, uh, the hegemony looks at these guys, be like, oh, I don't know, what, what are you? Like, you, you, you play your little drums, your darbukas, and you, you know, you wear your ridiculous white dresses, and, and you believe in, you know, rabbis and stuff. That's okay. You're cute. You could serve in the army. You could work blue collar jobs, but, you know, we're the pilots, we're the prime ministers, we're the, you know, people who are going to lead the culture, the economy, everything else. Now, uh, demographics is a wonderful thing. Uh, and two amazing things happened. First of all, uh, you know, people started uh, having a lot of children. And second of all, these children, blessedly, wonderfully, truly started marrying each other because, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, wasn't really a big deal where you came from if your family came from originally from Poland or originally from Morocco 40, 50, 60 years ago. You're just a normal Israeli who, you know, met up at the mall or in the army or wherever. Uh, and so this question began to kind of um, to kind of or so we thought began to kind of 
kind of fade into the background. However, now you're seeing uh, its resurgence because I think a lot of the people demonstrating in Israel, and I would put that number, uh, Eric and Antonia, about a third of Israelis uh, are looking at how Israel, as a result of all that intermarriage and all that mixing and all that cultural change, Israel has become a really different country. It's become a country that's much more Mediterranean. It's become a country that's much more observant and traditional and, and enthusiastic about its tradition. I mean, we have pop singers who now make absolute, like, you know, number one chart hits out of, you know, section of the Talmud, literally. Uh, it's incredible to watch. And I think the people marching in Tel Aviv are looking at this being like, that's actually not what we want. We want, you know, Netflix shows. We want, you know, Startup Nation. We, we want things that feel to us incompatible to all this traditional Mediterraneanism. And, and that's the kernel of the conflict. Right. I mean, that, that is, and, and, and part of that, you know, I think part of the problem, right, is that these Jews that came from other countries, they never lived through the Western liberal enlightenment, right? That's right. <laughs> like the, the, the Western Jews who are coming from that were coming with that liberal secular packaging. And again, not to, to hover on it too much, but you, you, you do mention in your essay, Zionism was part of the great surge of nationalism in the 19th century, right? The thought that everything from World War I triggered by a, a, a Serbian nationalist who killed an emperor, basically killing the imperial system for the sake of wanting their own nation, which defined much of 19th and 20th century politics, Zionism was an extension of that. The only difference was the Jews weren't standing on the land they claim was their own right? while the Serbs were. And so it was a little more complicated, right? And it's everyone knows who's read Zionism, like some of the early Zionist experiments were, oh, establish the state in Argentina or Uganda or wherever, right? Like the thought was just establishing a nation. But of course, some actually insisted that Jerusalem would be the, the eternal homeland of the Jews. Well, the, funny, the, the, the funny thing about this, and, and this is why I insisted that we start this, this amazing new uh, reader that, that we put out a tablet with with a sort of you know a whole collection of of original essays by Zionism's founding fathers, you read these dudes uh, and you realize right away, like literally four paragraphs in, that absolutely none of them agree on absolutely anything. I mean, first of all, <laughs> if you ask them why do Jews need a state, some would say, oh, because uh, every normal country needs a state. Some would say, no, no, it's not that; it's just anti-Semitism. The third would say, no, it's the promised land. And then you ask, okay, well, let's assume I gave you a state. What would you do with it? One says, oh, my God, it would be just like Vienna and it will have great trains and the opera will be terrific. And the other said, no, no, we actually have to be real socialist, communist, you know, land workers. And that's how we redeem ourselves. And Nietzsche. And then the third would say, no, guys, it's like religion. And, and you ask yourself, like, this is literally as if the founding fathers, you know, would like want like you would have Jefferson favoring, you know, communism and then Adams favoring, you know, monarchism and then Washington favoring, you know, a, a republic. Like, totally, totally, totally different answers. And so you ask, okay, what, what, what brings you together? What makes you a coherent movement in any sense of, of the word? And the answer is, I think, that it uh, is a covenantal movement. Um, I think there are only two covenantal countries in the world. That's Israel and America. Countries that exist uh, in a weird, depending on your point of view, either either sublime or really... Can I curse on the show? Yes. Really yes. fucked up relationship with a creator. Uh, and therefore, it's a country or Zionism is a movement that said, okay, the idea here is that we're pursuing really, really, really ancient biblical promises to go to the promised land and build there not just another country, but a country that would really serve this great line in Isaiah as a, a house of worship for all nations. That takes a, a bit of building. Um, and the whole point of the conversation is arguing about how to go ahead and do that. That was literally the argument was the whole point of Zionism from the beginning. It achieved its immediate goal of building the state about 75 years ago. It's now going through its second and much more traumatic and dramatic phase 
of trying to figure out, okay, well, what does it mean to have a Jewish state? There are like so many really deep, intricate questions that go along with that question. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I want to tell you about my new interview show, Upstream. Upstream is where I go deeper with some of the world's most interesting thinkers to map the constellation of ideas that matter. On the first season of Upstream, you'll hear from Mark Andreessen, David Sachs, Balaji, Ezra Klein, Joe Lonsdale, and more. Make sure to subscribe and check out the first episode with Mark Andreessen. The link is in the description. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, it's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. Yeah, another thing I think it's worth pointing out, again, in, in the educational mode of someone, as you can see in the bookshelf behind me, probably reads too much Jewish and Israeli history and then someone who's actually lived there. I'm, I'm getting a little late to the party, Leo. By the way, I converted last two weeks ago and I'm doing a piece for Tablet about it as a total side note. Um, but, Mazel Tov and welcome home. And welcome, yeah, well, well, we'll get to that in a second. But, but one of the interesting things, I was, I was reading Micah Goodman's book about I, I, his last two books, I forget mm -hmm. the titles, but basically what he cites as interesting is the rise of, of religious Zionism, right? Which to a naive observer may not sound as oxymoronic as it actually is, because as you're citing the early Zionists, I mean, some of them were religiously motivated, but by and large, these really founding fathers, like it, it, it would be hard to find a photo of Ben-Gurion with a kippah on or with tefillin on it, as far as I know, it doesn't exist. And they were, they were mostly completely secular and, and, and socialist, right? I mean, there was a sort of religious Zionist movement of Jabotinsky and whatnot, but it didn't really take off. And politically, it didn't really come to fruition until the late 70s and 80s, in which you actually had like a right wing in Israel. And the, the thing is that like his, historically, it's a very basic model. There was largely the secular liberals who wanted to recreate, you know, Berlin and the Mediterranean. And then you had this weird subset of like 10% or so of Orthodox you know, some of them already like ultra orthodox to use the kind of English misnomer. Um, and they were maintained as like this weird, like bonsai plant that was this weird thing that or like an orchid in some like in some hothouse that you would maintain because you felt some sort of religious duty to it. But nobody actually took it seriously. Right. It was always this weird little freak show over here in Mayor Sharim. But like, who cares what they think? Right. And then you get to the point where you have religious Zionists who wear the kippah, are observant, serve in the army, pay taxes, participate in society and yet are orthodox. Right. And again, the Mizraki tend to map to that in, in a big way because they, they don't have this bifurcation split between sort of shtetl Jews and sort of secular liberals. And again, that the rise of religious Zionism and then also the settler movement, just to add more complexity to this, is also part of the equation, right? And I guess, like, I think a lot of that is what inspires trepidation with the people on the left who just want to be like Sweden that you just highlighted. Well, I think I think the problem, I'm, I'm, I'm going to yes and you and I'm going to complicate it a million times. And, and here's actually where I think it, it, it actually kind of maps really... Uh, kind of curiously well with with domestic situation here in the United States. I think that a lot of the people who started this country, as you said, were not just secular, but like secularists, you know, par excellence. These are people who were really deeply allergic to anything that smacked of faith in any way, shape or form. Uh, and to them, there's really only one way 
to be religious, which is to be a, a benighted, bearded, you know, kasha in your beard type of situation, uh, misogynistic, homophobic, a person who is just not along with all the good virtues. And at the same time, Israelis, the majority of them, developed this like really kind of fascinating and incredibly layered and intricate way of being Jewish. You mentioned Mizrahi, like it is not uncommon. You know, I go to a synagogue in Tel Aviv that is when I'm there, which is which is mostly French Jews uh, who immigrated from uh, from France and, and are for the you know major part are are Mizrahi Jews. They're originally from places like you know Tunisia, Morocco, etc. Uh, it is not uncommon to see these dudes uh, walk away from shul on Friday night and then, you know, about half of them go home to have Shabbat dinner with the families and observe the Sabbath and half of them go straight to the club to have like a really good time. And there's no contradiction between it because it's, hey, you know, like it's a, it's a complicated kind of like mosaic of, of a life. Uh, the way religious life is actually lived in experience is so much richer and so much deeper. And yeah, you're right. It used to be once upon a time that it was a much more binary situation. I think one of the things that genuinely freaks out uh, those those remnant, I would call them uh, ungraciously, the, those third of Israelis who you see kind of marching in the streets, uh, is the fact that they they understand that if there's anything that that brings all these um, all these fifty shades of uh, black and white uh, Jews who or want to be observant or traditional Jews in some way, if there's anything that really truly unites them, it's their uh, deep held belief that they don't want this kind of, you know, stringent secularism that says no to any, any expression of religion uh, as you see it. And that kind of terrifies them because that kind of pulls the rug away, I think from under their feet. And I'm, I'm speaking in great big generalities, uh, but I'll give you one example. I think will make it so, so clear. So three years ago, uh, some religious guys wanted to have a, a an event, a big event in the central square in Tel Aviv, Rabin Square. And I say, look, here's the deal. We're religious folk. Our people, they don't like mixed seating, right? We like men and women apart. But we understand it's not everybody's way. I'll cut you a deal. Uh, we'll put a mechitza, a divider, in the middle of, of this event. So men and women could sit, sit separately, sit separately, you know, separate seating. But for those who don't like it and wish to sit together, we'll have another section right next to the uh, segregated gender section where everyone can sit wherever they want. So literally, there'll be like one entrance for people who want to observe this, one entrance for people who don't want to observe this, no problem at all. Deal? And the Tel Aviv municipality said, fuck you, no deal. Separate is never equal. Gender segregation is never okay. We don't care about your observance. Your values are benighted. You cannot have this. These people went to court and said, like, are you kidding us? Like, we actually came up with a solution that honors and respects everyone. But now here is a municipality not respecting our beliefs. I think that is just an indication of how kind of um, fearful uh, the secular Israelis are of anything that seems like it could lead to greater observance. And th that to me is, is really kind of like where, where, where the game uh, where the game is played, because you could hear a lot of well-meaning, um, you know, respectful, wonderful people in, in, you know, secular Israel say, look, if we give in to those people, Israel is going to become another Iran. You're going to see, you know, you're going to see people forcing you to keep kosher. You know, someone will come in and grab your cheeseburger out of your cold, dead hands. Uh, they will forcefully put, you know, a, a wig on your wife's head. Like it will be a total theocratic disaster. 
what religious Israelis are saying, no, guys, we actually want the opposite of that. We want more freedom. And this is in large part what the judicial reforms are about. We want the maximum amount of liberty to make sure that anyone uh, could be able, would be able to live according to his or her own beliefs or lack of beliefs. Uh, and I think to the, to, the kind of, um, to the kind of folks who want a kind of technocratic Western liberal state a la Silicon Valley, uh, you know, a la San Francisco, a la New York, uh, that's just odious because any expression of faith in public square, even if wanted by 93% of the people, is inherently not democratic. You cannot be a democracy and have segregated seating, even if that is what the religious belief of literally two-thirds of the people dictates. And here we run into a really big and fascinating problem. Right. Well, I, so I tweeted this recently uh, just to try to expand the overtime window a little bit. When, when they're using democracy, what they really mean is universalism, right? Because gotcha. uh, otherwise, otherwise, it's an absurd claim. They lost the election, right? These are considered pro-democracy protests, but they're protesting against a democratically elected That's government. Right. I, it, it's an absurdity. But the only reason to actually resolve the absurdity is, again, to assume democracy is part of the secular universalist culture. What's interesting about this is that it really goes to the heart of Judaism itself. Like, how do you resolve particularism? Maybe we should define those terms. I think universalism is, is one of those things that like, it's a very Christian notion and it's so, it's so baked into like the Western mental software. It's like a fish and water thing that unless you were, this is a passage from my conversion essay, by the way, unless you remove yourself from that Christian metaphor and like the only, the only worldview that's not Christian that's accessible to most Christians is either like the Greco-Roman classical world, if you're a real classics nerd, or maybe the Jewish world, if, if, you're, if you're going in that direction. Um, why don't we define that? And what, what does that mean, universalism? Uh, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot, Leo. No, <laughs> but, look, yeah, we'll, I, I, well, we, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting back, I'm, I'm pouring some scotch, and we, we could have a very long discussion here. <laughs> but I think in, in very, very, very kind of like uh, basic, general, big terms, I think you could have two forms of belief, right? You could have a form of belief that says uh, all virtues uh, and values are common to all right thinking, good feeling, uh, decent human beings. Therefore, we should see our first and foremost allegiance uh, to a kind of call it the family of man, some kind of big, uh, big tent um, <clears throat> organization that includes anyone who wants to be decent uh, towards other human beings. And then if you wish within that tent to have your own uh, particular corner, that is also uh, available to you as an option. It is just, however, a, a convenience of arranging people according to polity so they could govern themselves in, in some good fashion. Uh, the Hebrew Bible, in its infinite wisdom, gives us a different account. Uh, it is the account, and I think even, even those of us who've, uh, you know, were a, a few days removed from, uh, from Sunday school might recall it's the example of the Tower of Babel. Uh, you would ask, why is God so upset with the fact that all these humans are getting together and speaking the same language and building something amazing? Isn't that kind of the point of everything? Uh, and and the reason or the interpretation that some of the smartest rabbis that I've read uh, on this give is because there actually isn't such a thing as universalism. Once you start talking about the universal solution, uh, you're you're wading into really murky waters because we are so incredibly different. And to believe in universalism in a weird, fucked up way is to believe that there's no such thing as culture, that there are no differences between human beings, that there's nothing really that divides us. The Tower of Babel gives us a much smarter recognition. Uh, it says rather than get together, impose some kind of uh, alleged universalism that by default would leave, you know, three quarters of people out and will become this nightmarish, you know, post-apocalyptic uh, dystopian uh, power nightmare. 
uh, you should do something else. You should understand that true universalism only rises, only flourishes uh, out of particularism. That only if you know your own tribe, your own family, your own people, understand their motivations, develop a sense of empathy based on, on your needs and your kinship and your elected affinities, could you then look at your fellow man and be like, I, I have nothing but love in my heart towards that person because I understand their goals. They're similar to my goals. We may be at opposite ends. We may be in clashing uh, you know, camps. We may fight for limited resources, but I'm not demonizing that person because I understand what it is that I want. There's an amazing, amazing uh, recognition of that uh, in a really, really great book by, by the Soviet author Vasily Grossman. Uh, he wrote this masterpiece called Life and Fate. Uh, it's really, I think, one of the greatest books ever written, if not the greatest, about World War II. Uh, and it was insufficiently Stalinist, which is why it was uh, banned. And Grossman was suicidal. And so as a consolation prize, they sent him to Armenia. So here he goes to Armenia, this classic Soviet you know, uh, Jew who really bought into the sort of communist ideal of universalism, all workers, all men, are brothers, unite, etc. Uh, and he goes to Armenia and he see these people who are very interested in Armenian culture, in Armenian history, in, you know, Christian Armenian religion. Uh, and he looks at them and says like, these, these people are monkeys. Like, look at, look at these primitive, like literally the first three quarters of the book is just him. It's just his notebooks and his diaries. The first three quarters of the book is him kind of berating these poor Armenian villagers. And then he uh, is invited to this wedding, to this country wedding. And at some point, someone finds out he's Jewish. And literally, like, like in a bad movie, there's a record scratch, the music stops, the band stops playing. And one by one, the Armenian villagers stand up and say, you're Jewish. We are so honored that you're here because our people experience a genocide and your people just experience a genocide. That brings us together as brothers and sisters. And all of a sudden, this genius, Vasily Grossman, understands, fuck. It was their particular experience that made them able to have some empathy towards my particular experience. And that's how universalism is, universalism is built. It's always from the particular to the global that the true sense of kinship operates, which again, this great line in Isaiah, my house shall be a house of worship for all people. Only if the Jews learn how to be particularists in their own sense, could they then turn the corner and, and uh, help usher in this vision of universal justice and freedom. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. And it's, it's a thought that I've, I've often had myself. I, I think just to hone in on the duality, because again, I think we're going all over the place with a lot of the Soviet and Armenian stuff. And you cited actually in your piece here, and you cite, uh, you know, Hazoni, who I've also had a conversation with about, and he wrote this book on the virtues of nationhood. I think the, the, the two either end of the spectrum we're talking about is sort of the top-down imperialism. You, you cite the example of the Westphalian nation-state, right, in 1648, whenever it was founded, or whenever the, the piece of Westphalia, yeah, 1648, I think. Um, the, the idea of going from an imperial order ruled by, you know, the Pope, basically, in the Holy Roman Empire, to the particularism of, you know, the, the checkerboard map that we currently see of Europe, which actually used to be even more fragmented than it is now, um, is, the, is the dialectic that you're hinting at. And the thought that you'd have imperial universalism is is opposed to the much more decentralized and fragmented. I could take I could take you back. I could take you back much earlier. I mean, look 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 at all the nation states of antiquity, right? If, if you look at at what happened, uh, you know, more or less during the time of the Bible, there were only two systems of government that were acceptable back then, roughly speaking. 
tribe, tribalism, like actual little tribes that kind of clash with other tribes, or imperialism, all these, you know, hey, look at the Egyptians, they're grand and mighty. The amazing promise of the Bible uh, is to do something that is that is a negation uh, of both kind of jaundiced, narrow-viewed, uber-particularism, uh, and also kind of like muscular, chest-puffing uh, universalism. What the Bible tells us to do, like, no, no, no. The Bible wants the Jews to go back to their promised land and start a Hebrew republic and start a state that doesn't have any aspirations to take over the world and start a state that wishes to live in peace with its neighbors. That is, again, uh, striving towards universal uh, bonds and kinship, but only based on a very particular residence in a particular setting under a particular set of laws. We don't want to be another Egypt. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's a good comparison. To, to, to take it slightly more to the present era, a thought that I've often had coming. So I was raised in Miami, which, in my opinion, is like is definitely the latter st- style of particularist diversity. The other total, promised land, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, right, exactly. And it, speaking of the Armenians having uh, sympathy with the Jews, I don't know if you know this, like, Cubans actually toast next year in Havana at most social events Mm-hmm. much like the Jews recite at the end of Yom Kippur. Um, of course, uh, it's a little strange because now you can go, you can, you know, you can actually go to both Jerusalem and Havana and, you, and Jerusalem's a little bit more exciting these days. And Havana, it's, Cubans can go back to Havana, but nobody actually wants to go because unfortunately they're still living in, in exile. But but that's the idea. I think if, if you've lived as an ethnic minority, in a sense, you understand that there's a greater universalism in the particularism of it, right? And, and if you go to Miami, frankly, there's a lot more harmony between the crazy Latin Americans, and then all the Orthodox Jews that live there. For those who don't know, Miami is like probably the second Jewish city in the United States after maybe like New York or something, right? Like, you know, Talmud Academy is like kosher, rest, like everything, the whole deal, right? Right next to like beaches and the whole Latin American thing. It's just like, it's a total give, circus. Give our New York it. politicians some some time and some space and Miami will be the biggest <laughs> Jewish uh, population. <laughs> Entirely possible, right? But that, but that is, but then, but like no one... Like the whole wokeness, like liberal Protestant woke religion thing gets like zero play in Miami. Everyone's like, what the fuck is this? You're crazy. Latinx is a joke. Like, no. But yet people actually live in more cultural harmony, in my opinion, in, in Miami than they do say in San Francisco, where it's this constantly fraught, top-down imposed thing. And it's, it's, it's kind of a disaster. Like, it just doesn't work. It is, it is such a smart observation. Uh, you mentioned Ben-Gurion before, Israel's founding father, first prime minister, uh, an avid secularist, though if you visit his home uh, in Tel Aviv, which I hope you do, that dude read you know, extensively in, in all things Jewish and, and Hebrew. But he had this great saying that he loved. He said, the history of Israel is the history from the Tanakh to the Palmach. Tanakh being the Hebrew Bible, <laughs> Palmach being the pro uh, the, the proto military organization that eventually became the Israel Defense Forces that helped fight for the establishment of the state of Israel. In other words, in Ben Gurion's vision, there was no Jewish history uh, from the moment of of, of the Bible, uh, and then there was exile, and you know yada 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 yada. Two thousand years later, here we are, and now we have guns and we're cool which sounds like it's like it's a tough guy kind of macho sensibility, but actually it is so incredibly kind of, you know, myopic and exilic and diasporic. It's like, no, no, let me show you how tough I am. I totally agree that a lot of Jews who come from religious traditions and a lot of Jews who are, ex- who are you know, experienced living as one minority among other minorities actually understand that there's an amazing universalism and knowing like, 
I do this. My Cuban brother across the street does something very, very similar that I could totally understand. You know, my Muslim buddy, uh, you know, two doors down has his own version of, of this thing that I do. You kind of feel much more comfortable in the world. And I think in, in a weird way, it's kind of funny how how diasporic and, and insecure so many of these tough guy secular Israelis seem to me and how kind of like really worldly uh, all all the bearded dudes, religious Jews seem to me because, yeah, they understand, you know, the world is a big and complicated place. There are a lot of other civilizations and cultures and we're all living in it, even if we're only living in a Jewish state. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another tension at the heart of the Israeli thing is that between, I think Israel has to be the only country that I know that has a ministry of diaspora affairs, right? In which right. There's, an entire, there's an entire ministry, and in fact, a government agent, the Jewish agency, responsible for both dealing with the diaspora and then convincing them to move to Israel. <laughs> I believe right. the Armenians have that too, by the way. Speaking they? Of the okay. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned the Armenians. The Armenians, the Lebanese, the Cubans, the Jews, there's like, there's certain diasporic nations, right, that through the vagaries of history, have been forced to live elsewhere and they have similar and they, they always somehow get bin to the same mercantilist class wherever they go and they somehow maintain this crazy uh you know stiff-necked adherence to whatever little culture they had forever um yeah there's a lot of commonalities there that you could you could actually draw one other thing that i think that there's like the, the gulf of incomprehension that we're going to solve in this podcast this podcast is going to clear up all the questions yeah that's it Everyone, that's whenever right. there's a future, future Israel thing, they're just going to be forced to watch this, and that's it. All answers. This, really is, this is the new Israeli constitution that they're. This, new, it, this, exactly. is, this is it. it. This is it. This is the Federalist Papers, but in <laughs> modern form, in the podcast form. Um, one thing that, like, one I think cancel worthy take that I, I'm not going to have the balls to write, but you should you should probably write it, Leo. Is that I think, and I've, I've chatted about this with with Alana actually. That like I think one one of the one of the many forms of incomprehension between the West and, and Israel is not just the universalism versus particularism thing. I think the notion of justice, capital J justice, is very different in Israel than it is in the West, particularly as regards to you know violence and the use of force, right? Um, I, I think uh, she, when, whenever I bring this up, she always points me to the essay by um, Mayor Soloveitchik about the, the virtue of hatred that he published in First Things Magazine, which is a Catholic magazine, 15 years ago. He, pro he probably couldn't publish this today. But basically the question of like, he starts, it, it opens, sorry, it's a convoluted retelling here, but it, it starts with, um, I guess, Simon Wiesenthal, like asked a bunch of writers and intellectuals if they would forgive uh, an SS Nazi on his death. Mm -hmm. I guess there's an anecdote yes. of this actually happened, I think, at the end of World War II or something. An SS mm -hmm. man was dying and he asked a Jew to forgive him, right? <laughs> Which is a little bit late to suddenly get the, get the message here. But whatever, I guess when you're staring in the grave, you suddenly have thoughts you wouldn't otherwise have. And I think the Jew doesn't forgive him and kind of walks away. As, and as, then, well, as well, he shouldn't. As well, well, exactly. And that's the division. He noticed he pulled, I think, everyone from like Archbishop Desmond Tutu who's super anti-Israel, by the way, um, as to whether you should forgive the SS guy or not. Um, and then who else? Cynthia, some well-known Jewish writer, I think Cynthia Ozick, maybe? Cynthia from Ozick, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Who said, absolutely not. Sooner a flight of God than, than the SS guy. And I think that's, that's the difference, right? If you read, and of course, Christians understand this as well, right? A lot of Christian theologians have tried to reconcile. How do we reconcile the Hebrew God to the new covenant? In fact, they would, they would describe the Gospels as the new covenant. Because clearly there's a new guy in charge and there's like a new contract because like the old guy and the new guy are like spouting completely different messages through the prophets. Like how do we even reconcile a God that ordered Moses to annihilate the Jebusites, for example, um, with someone who is, you know, forgive your enemy, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, the meek shall inherit the earth, et cetera, the, the entire Sermon on the Mount. And I think there's a difference there. And, and of course, Christian societies have done all the sorts of horrors that other societies have done, just to be clear. 
Um, but they tend to couch them in different terms. And particularly in, in this moment in time, I think um, it, like Netanyahu recently announced that, um, you know, and in very Fauda style, the Shimbet uh, terminated uh, basically the terrorists who killed the two, the two settler girls or whatever on the West Bank. And he basically said, yeah, we settled accounts with them. End of story, right? And like, that's it. Very cut and dried, right? And like, there's, n and of course, the West does drone strikes and all that stuff as well, but usually more under the table, you know. Biden or Obama would never have come out and said, oh, yeah, we settled accounts with, uh, you know, bin Laden and his entire. <laughs> and by the way, we destroyed his family's house as a, as a reprisal thing, which the IDF regularly does, which is legal in, in Israel. Right. And so I think that that different sense of justice. Right. The difference between turn the other cheek and remember Amalek. Right. Which for those who don't know their Bible, the Amalekites were one of the sworn enemies of Israel. In fact, it's, I think it's one of the 613th book. I can consult my book up there. I think it remembering Amalek is. Is, <laughs> Yeah. Right. And again, this is I mean, talk about holding a fucking grudge. The, the Amaleks, this is like a 2,500 year old grudge at least. Well, no, probably even more, a 3,000 year old world grudge. And the Jews are still kind of remembering it. No, no chance of forgiveness. And so to me, I think that's one of the, that's one of the key differences. And I think there's just, there's just no way to get around it. The moral universes are just different. There's an amazing uh, Jewish saying that says, uh, he who takes pity on the cruel uh, is ah, bound yes. to end up being cruel to those who, who need pity. Uh, which I think is very, very true. I mean, uh, we just finished reading this week, uh, probably the greatest book ever written, uh, the book of Leviticus, one of the five books oh, of, yes. of, of Moses. Yeah. Uh, yeah, here, here you have it, the, the, the sixth. I'm going to whip it out. <laughs> uh, you know, one one of the greatest books ever written. Uh, and it, Leviticus explains, uh, explains, I think, Jewish morality in, in, in a very kind of intricate fashion, uh, but the idea, the sort of engine, uh, the moral engine at the heart of it is very, very simple. Uh, it says, look, uh, if you only had this kind of legalistic rule-bound culture, uh, devoid and depleted of all mercy, uh, then you're some kind of bureaucratic monster. Uh, you're, you're, you're a post-human nightmare and no one should ever be that. However, if you only had some kind of vague idea of, well, you should be kind, you should always forgive, you should always, you know, I don't want to say turn the other cheek, but you should always kind of have nothing but, but love and acceptance in your heart. Uh, then basically you're creating a moral universe without any consequences because all anyone has to do is say, oh, really? Sorry, I killed your entire family. Please forgive me. I promise never to do it again. Well, you can't because grandma's already dead. Uh, and if you don't have a moral universe in which you say, okay, there is definitely a path to forgiveness. There is definitely a path to repentance, but there are also consequences for actions. And actually it is very important that we keep these consequences uh, both strict and observable. Uh, then what we have is a, an amoral universe uh, in, in which at some point power takes over virtue. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, Christianity, again, was was a weird religious spinoff from the Hebrew Bible. And in some sense, Christianity, it's almost like a spectrum between the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Gospels. And, and you know, there's a, there's a form of Christian heresy called Marcionism that rejects the Hebrew Bible and just accepts the Gospels alone. And it is a heresy, right, to go completely head down into the Gospels, right? I think, I think it's less... Uh, it, since, since you're since you're triggering me here uh, to go to go full kind of bananas, uh, I think it's less you know Judaism versus Christianity because I think you know Augustine uh, in his great you know genius uh, understands a lot of these ideas you know intricately and inherently. I think it's about the Enlightenment. Um, something really interesting happens in the Enlightenment. You know, for 
for most of human history, uh, people ask themselves the seminal question maybe of human morality is like, are people good or bad inherently? Which is it? And the answer that they give is like, well, or the answer that classical uh, Jewish and Christian thought gave like, well, you know, humans are capable of both. Uh, there is this great line in the third or fourth chapter of Genesis that says, you know, sin croucheth at the door. God is basically telling Cain, um, you know, just before the murder, listen, man, like this dark, big, black, ferocious beast, sin is right there. And if you're not careful, it will devour you and you will become a bad person. But it's your choice. You could say no. Therefore, if you believe that we could either do amazing things or terrible things, uh, what type of moral system of conduct and what type of system of government will you have? Well, I think then the answer is uh, you take things very, very slowly. Uh, you you leave enough room for change and growth, but you do so in a way that respects and adheres to traditions because traditionalism is how these things get adjudicated over time. And then comes the Enlightenment and gives a radically different answer. It says, no, 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 all, all is false. Uh, people are good, inherently good, really great, good. What makes them bad? Well, you know, there are some fuckers out there who want to take away our powers and our privileges. And so they come and they lord it over us. Uh, and so the only thing that we have to do is ask ourselves today, uh, how can we be, you know, a little bit better off? How could we uh, resist uh, these powers that try to oppress our, our innate goodness? Which is how you get uh, the, probably one of the stupidest creations of mankind, which is social contract theory. Uh, which assumes that all of us are atomized individuals. Uh, you know, a French philosopher once said that the people who invented social contract theory either had no children or had forgotten what it was like to be children themselves because they assume that none of us have families or religion or tradition or tribes or countries or anything. We just get together, totally free people, no strings attached, and we trade away some of our resources in order to get, you know, some general sense of, of, of peace and security. And therefore, if tomorrow we find a better arrangement to be more free and more good, we could chuck away everything that happened today because, hey, we have a better system, which is, a, I think, a pretty fair description of progressivism. That's completely crazy making. Imagine going to bed wondering, is tomorrow going to be the same or is virtue and justice going to be totally different on Monday than it was on Wednesday? Uh, and that is why I think uh, more and more in this country and in Israel saying like, okay, we understand tradition holds a really big promise. Let's build on that as a foundation rather than some, you know, crazy, you know, Mike idea of, you know, justice that doesn't really bring, well, any justice. Uh, to your comment about the French philosophers must not have, must not have had children. Uh, Rousseau uh, did have children, but he abandoned all of them uh, to an orphanage, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. had That's right. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's, um, you realize how foolish the blank slates are until you have a kid. And then you realize with terror that, in fact, your children are miniature versions of you, for, uh, for better or worse. And then, uh, yeah. <laughs> Look, there's <laughs> a reason why, why, why all these, why we're seeing like, precipitous decline in 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 childbirth in all these countries that you know purport these so-called you know virtuous progressive agendas because they're actually death cults they're not uh open to the idea of you know propagating the species it's not an interest to them in fact it's a liability except israel israel except is israel. the only western country with a, a rising birth rate that's right. incredible and it's not just a religious either um just nope. by and large israelis even secular ones just have more kids 3.1 on average baby there you go. <laughs> so why is that? So that's another, again, um, you know, 
Israel really is an exceptional nation in many ways. What is your theory as to the birth rate thing? Because again, you literally plot every birth rate, even in not Western countries, like in Iran, for example, birth rate, like everywhere modernity touches, birth rates just like crater. That's right. And yet Israel is the exception. Why? What's your theory? On, we, we, on got, we, got, we got the vaccine, <laughs> the, the anti-modernity vaccine. It's called <laughs> Judaism. It's great. <laughs> Honestly, look, people, people have... Well, there are so many ways to answer this question, uh, and I'm being only a little ridiculous. You know, you could say, yeah, external threats kind of uh, really clarify things. You could say, oh, it's a much more family-oriented thing. You could say, well, it's a small country. Everybody lives, you know, very tightly in tightly knit communities, multi-generational arrangements. You could say all that. But honestly, look, I think it's because most Israelis uh, being firmly rooted and, and, and studies show again and again and again and again that there are really very, very few Israelis who define themselves as completely secular. The vast majority believe in some, you know, some adherence, some connection, some rootedness in, in Jewish tradition. Uh, you simply have something to live for and you want to pass that down to next generations. In fact, you understand that passing this to future generations is the entire point of this covenant. It, it could never end with you. It is an eternal obligation. And when you have that, well, you're very happy to have children. Yeah, I think it's part of it. I think also mass conscription has to be part of it as well. Being forced to become an adult at 18, which in the West, you can basically postpone and continue to live like an adolescent well into your 40s in San Francisco. You can walk around mm -hmm. the city and see it. Well, in Israel, that's not really a luxury you have. No. Because <laughs> suddenly you're holding a rifle and you're at a checkpoint or you're standing on a tank in Lebanon and then holy shit, we have left childhood behind, right? And you come back from that and you just can't go back to that same life. Um, yeah. I, I, I gleefully agree. Although look, <laughs> you know, honestly, I, th I think when, when, when people realize like the real kind of depth of Israeli military service, on the one hand, it is so awesome in, in the literal sense of, of the word, uh, you do have a firearm, uh, you do uh, shoot and are shot at, uh, but at the same time, you know, here you are, you're 18, you're uh, in a secluded army base somewhere in the desert, co-ed, men and women. Uh, there's some some nice, uh, you know, uh, beverages to be had. Uh, and there are guns. So it's like college with M16 some of the time. And it's kind of amazing. <laughs> um, I love my army service. That, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Leo, hmm. I, I actually want to quote uh, uh, Alana. Um, this is something she told me uh, to tell you. She said, for the si first six years I knew Liel, he made my life difficult by being an inveterate leftist. That's right. Over the next six years, he did it by being a right winger. God, That's knows, right. God knows what he has up his sleeve next. Can you uh, <laughs> can you trace your, your evolution a bit or un unpack that quote? You know, I am uh, way too sober to do it in a way that probably uh, honors that, that transition. And I, I could pull this kind of dick move and say like, well, I haven't changed. It's the world that changed. Uh, and, and in a weird way, you know, I think that might be true. Uh, a lot of the things that I uh, used to believe in as, as, you know, standalone ideals are things that I still think would be really good ideas. I think if there was some kind of possibility uh, to create a sustainable separation between Israel and the Palestinians, uh, which allowed both of these peoples, uh, each of which I believe thoroughly uh, has a very legitimate claim uh, to this way too narrow and way too promised strip of land. Uh, I think that would be great. Uh, and I believed in that and uh, worked assiduously for it. However, at some point, when you see uh, you know, your opponent uh, do nothing but invest time and resources and energy and money uh, in murdering you, 
when you see the Palestinian Authority paying unbelievably lucrative salaries to anyone who would murder Jews, uh, when you see no real effort and nothing but, you know, uh, blame and castigations and propaganda and lies, at some point you say, well, fuck these guys. You know, I tried. How, how long could we play this game? How long could we continue, can, can we continue to do this? That's a surface level answer. The, the deeper level answer, uh, I think, has to do with, with, with some other, uh, you know, sorted parts of my life. Look, I came here. Um, it was 1999. I was 23. And my version of life, uh, so different from, from what I believe now, was like, okay, well, I was born in this provincial backwater called Israel. Now I will go to Columbia University. I will get a PhD in human machine interaction and I will do such cool shit and I will teach. I'll have an amazing office. I'll write books and they'll invite me to all these parties at the New Yorker. And, and I will, you know, really relish in this intellectual life with my intellectual and moral equals. And then something terrible happened. It all came true. And I realized that, that this milieu that I was entering into uh, was incredibly myopic. Uh, completely uninterested in the free and unfettered exchange of ideas, hated any type of, um, you know, anything that, that smacked of traditionalism and faith, uh, really disliked it when I said, yeah, I believe in God, which I always did. That is an uh, unchanging element. Uh, really disliked it when I said, hey, you know, I, I would love the Palestinians to have their own state, but I actually also don't wish for the demise of the world's sole Jewish state. Uh, and, and I realized just how corrupted and hollow that world was. Uh, and so when I stepped outside, I had to start thinking, okay, well, then what's eternal? Then, then what do you believe stands alone and forever? And to me, that answer was Judaism. Uh, and when that shift happened, I said, okay, look, I would wish now to invest uh, most of my time and life force and energy in, in trying to sort of bolster the things that I think that are most necessary for the survival of our people. And if at some point in time, you know, the Palestinians get their collective heads out of their collective asses and have some kind of, of semblance of reason and wish to discuss some kind of long-term solution to this conflict, hey, that's great. But I don't consider it uh, a priority anymore simply because it proved to be a dead-end road. It's, it's as practical for me as it is moral. I, I mean, the other thing looming here is the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, depending how you how you look at it um, or how you choose to call it. Which Very much Judea and Samaria. Uh, to Samaria, okay. Well, there you go. So that, that's already a statement. For those who don't realize, that's 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 already a statement in one direction. Because um, the West, yeah, the West Bank means it's the West Bank of something else, right? <laughs> versus versus the Eastern part of something else. Um, so yeah, I mean, one thing, and it's funny, I've asked some of my liberal Israeli friends, so what, what, do you, what are you gonna do about the settlements and, and the West Bank? And they have and they have no cogent answer, right? And I think it, what they're sort of belatedly realizing is what like the foreign policy, you know, establishment is like like no shit. Foreign policy magazine just published a piece called "The Two State Solution Is Dead." And like I'm, I, it's funny when I was when I was at Goldman Sachs. Long story, I was a quant there. There used to be a joke if you picked up some piece of market news super late, the retort would be, "Oh, did you know Queen Victoria died?" Or mm -hmm. did you hear that the Beatles broke up? Right. Nice. So it's like, oh, the two state solution is dead. Is it? Oh wow, you're you're just getting so, this in 2023. So, so clap, yeah. <laughs> Great. I'm glad you got the memo finally. 
right? Like it's obviously dead, right? There is no two-state solution. That's the reality. And then the settlements are never going to go away because if you've been to the settlement and I was there, whatever, 15 plus years ago, I want to go back there again. But still, you can see what it's like. Ariel basically is like a suburb of Israel, of Tel Aviv, basically. It's not going anywhere. It's, in fact, I wish it was a new name for it because they're not settlements. Settlements makes you feel that it's like a crazy guy with a peyote and the kippah and like living in a little caravan on a hilltop instead of like a city that looks like basically Fremont, California. And it's obviously a bedroom community for a bigger city, which is what Fremont is. And the likelihood that Ariel is going to go back uh, to the pre-1967 borders, which everyone recites like it's some sort of magic incantation, is about as likely as Fremont to go back to the Ohlone Nation in California. <laughs> it's not happening, right? And if you actually want to talk about reality on the ground, let's talk about realities, not fantasies, right? And But so then what do you do with that, right? Like, what do you do with uh, Judea or the West Bank, depending how you think about it? Um, I think this is a, uh, at one and the same time, a completely fascinating and crucial question, and also a wonderfully, truly irrelevant question. Uh, when you look at these Jewish communities, uh, you see them as, uh, as, 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 as a hurdle, only if your end goal is to say, okay, well, look, I desire separation according to a certain kind of, of blueprint that has been, you know, uh, drafted sometime in the early 90s, tried and failed miserably. Uh, I don't think anyone, as you said, in their right mind uh, thinks like that anymore or, or views that anymore. Uh, where does that leave us? The answer is there are several scenarios. You know, one scenario uh, is, is a scenario of a one state solution, which, which a lot of lefties now uh, dream of uh, kind of surreptitiously and think this would be a really good idea if you made some kind of Israeli-Palestinian confederacy because that's going to work, right? Like <laughs> these people aren't going to murder each other within a second. Uh, one solution uh, has to do with the fate of the very, very, very precarious and brittle Kingdom of Jordan, uh, a kingdom which is barely surviving and certainly could not survive with his, without Israel's support, which one day, uh, being a majority Palestinian nation, one day could become a certain kind of answer to, to Palestinian nationalism. Uh, and then there is uh, the answer that I uh, favor, which is no answer at all. I think there's something, look, I love this country. I love America truly, deeply, dearly. I, I chose to make my life here. And one major reason why I'm so enamored with this country is that it, it, is, it is a perpetually adolescent nation uh, that has this kind of like, you know, almost childlike or, or teenage-like belief that everything's possible and everything could be solved. Um, maybe there are some things that can never be solved. Maybe there are some conflicts that are here uh, to be to be managed, to be contemplated, to be beheld, uh, but not to go away with some kind of like, okay, here is a set of arrangements that we are going to sign. And then every piece of the puzzle is, is going to fall into place. I wish nothing uh, but prosperity uh, on my Palestinian uh, friends and neighbors. In fact, I wish for them the precise thing. It's, it's like the reason I support school choice, right? I want every person to have exactly the rights that I have to make choices as a free citizen uh, in, in my own sovereign state. Uh, if they get there, and it's, you know, a lot at this point on them, uh, I think they will always find Israelis who are very willing to think creatively and maybe come up with solutions that right now in 2023, we can't even begin to imagine. Uh, but if they can continue to do this, then, hey, man, uh, it's not really a problem for Israel because they're not really an existential threat to us. Right. But I, but still, matters matters will, will evolve on the ground. So fast forward 30 years, mm -hmm. 
what does West Bank or Judea look like? Well, that's a great question. Look, right now you're looking at, at uh, a lot of demographic uh, uh, terms. You're looking, by the way, at, at a lot of migration out of Palestinian Authority uh, controlled territories because Palestinian Authority is a demonic, despotic uh, organization that, you know, persecutes gays, you know, uh, jails reporters and is generally a hellscape. So you're seeing a lot of very competent people go to places like Texas A&M just to have, you know, a good life. Uh, that trend may very well continue. Uh, at the same time, you're seeing a lot of Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria, as you mentioned, Antonio, grow uh, wonderfully. That might happen too. Uh, Jordan is certainly in the mix. Lord knows where, where the Saudis uh, will be in 20 or 30 years. They seem to be sobering up rapidly uh, if they ever felt any real you know, uh, affinity towards the Palestinian cause, which I highly doubt uh, that they ever did. Uh, but that seems to be changing really, really rapidly. Um, I think what we're seeing is really kind of a moment of collective sobering up, which in, in a very, very weird way, uh, the Abraham Accords really kind of accelerated uh, the understanding that Israel is not going away, uh, the understanding that it actually shares a lot of interests uh, with, with some of its neighbors, uh, and the understanding, and this is my favorite part, that unlike this kind of liberal, progressive, uh, Western notion of peace being this thing in which all of us come together and hug each other in some you know, universal orgy of, of, of love and goodwill, <laughs> Actually, we, that's dumb and gross. We don't want any of that. What we want are, you know, adults coming together to say like, okay, we have common problems. We're going to work together to solve them. We don't really have to love each other or even, you know, care too much for each other. We're just basically addressing realities on the ground. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely is the Western perspective. I would say, again, again, the origins are in the Gospels and <laughs> trying to create the kingdom of God on earth and trying to create the, the messianic world without waiting uh, for Moshe. But um, of course, I would say that. So one thing you glossed by, uh, if we're going to include this in the glossary of, of, of things that we mentioned for our, our guests, is the Abraham Accords, which Abraham Accords, major news in Israeli media, you know, possibly the biggest rejiggering of you know the Middle East in the past 20, call it 20, 30 years, and of course, totally ignored because unfortunately, there was a certain president in power that made it happen, and, right. we, can't, and we can't accept that he actually did create <laughs> either Middle Eastern peace or something like it, right? Can you maybe... and mention what those Abraham Accords are? Sure. And what, and uh, although I, I, I give I give full credit uh, to 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 Trump's predecessor, uh, Barack Obama, uh, may, may God bless him and keep him, uh, had uh, an idea that only a uh, university professor could be so stupid as to believe uh, that if you only selected uh, the, the true worthy partner in the Middle East uh, and empowered them, uh, all peace uh, would, would sort of ooze forth and flourish. And of course, that partner uh, is the Islamic Republic of Iran, which uh, we have been led to believe by the Obama administration has uh, some magical cast of people called moderates. Uh, and if you give them a lot of support, then they would make Tehran, you know, uh, like, like Lake Tahoe uh, in, in, in the Middle East. Um, and so the uh, Iranians all of a sudden became the darlings slash the obsession slash seriously the sole goal and purpose uh, of the Obama administration. It really helped that the Saudis code in Washington. You said earlier in the conversation, Antonio, that everything, one of, one of the kind of genius things about kind of imperialist mindset is that everything is read through American domestic politics prism. Uh, and so the Saudis in this respect are Republicans because, you know, they like the Bush family or whatever. Uh, and so we will get our own you know, partners, our own dance partners in the Middle East, those will be the Iranians, let's empower them. So all of a sudden, uh, here uh, are 
the nations of the region, and they're looking at at this Iran deal, uh, which is clearly and observably and demonstrably preposterous. Uh, they're seeing Obama say uh, that there will be red lines in Syria, and if these red lines will be crossed, there will be American intervention. Then they're seeing these red lines giddily crossed uh, by Bashar al-Assad, murdering and massacring hundreds of thousands of his own people. And they're seeing the American administration proceed to do absolutely nothing, at which point the world if if I may be so bold, says, okay, well, you know, these guys in Washington, they're not serious about keeping their promises and they're not serious about this region. They're only serious about some weird realignment with Iran, which being a Shia nation is at odds with the majority of the region, most of whom are Sunni Muslims. At which point uh, the, the region says, okay, well, we need some different kind of realignment. And the Saudis who are anything but stupid say, okay, well, who who in this region is actually a good partner? Uh, for us to do some kind of arms deals or, or weapon system deals with or, or kind of be somewhat aligned with uh, just so we could keep our own national interests going. Uh, and the, you know, the Emirates asked the same question. A lot of other players in the region asked the same question. And the obvious answer is, well, the small nation that is Iran's most bitter enemy and also has a lot of really fucking cool weapons technologies that they have developed independently over the last 55 years or so. Let's go hang with these guys. Uh, as a result of which we had a series of, of, of peace treaties and or kind of uh, understandings or, or glasnost type of, of coming uh, close and coming together, uh, collectively known as the Abraham Accords, which, and here credit where credit is due, which were pursued assiduously uh, and made possible uh, by the truly terrific foreign policy of President Donald John Trump. And his son. Uh, it turns out uh, Kushner did bring something and, in the Middle East. And, and his, and his son-in-law and, 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 you know, like a, a State Department and a DOD that were truly uh, up to the task. Yeah. And so the, the weird rejiggering that's happening, that it's, it's Sunnis and Jews against the Shia in the Middle East now, which is incredible when you think about it. And like, I think some of the photos you've seen coming out of this, which again, don't get a lot of play in American media, but like the Israeli flag going up in, I forget what it was, eight, I think it was UAE or something. I mean, they thought that Arab countries would be meeting as equals with Israeli foreign ministers and playing Hatikva and wherever it was, is just, would have been unthink literally unthinkable, you know, 10 plus years. It is now easier to get a kosher meal in Dubai than it is in Tel Aviv. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's incredible. Um, Zooming out. By the way, if, if, as, as a partial joke, if you want any hint that God exists, for some reason, there's always some blow up in the whole Israel-Iran Cold War right around the time of Purim. Somehow, it, it's always the case, right? Is it just me, Leo? You've always noticed this, right? There's always some goddamn thing right around Purim. They have not forgiven us for, for, for executing <laughs> Haman and his sons. <laughs> then there would not be any justice at all. The, the justice of the story of Purim, is, and that's the part of, of you know, the Book of Esther no one likes to talk about. But the justice of the story is that the Jews said, okay, you tried to kill us. Here's what we're going to do now. We are going to kill every last single one of you motherfuckers because that's justice. That's to show you that when you come and try to perpetrate evil against us, we are going to respond in kind. And that will dissuade you from ever wanting to fuck with us or anyone else again. That's how real justice works. See, well, okay. So, Leo, you made my point for me. This is the difference between Jewish and Christian notions of justice. And this is why... Um, like, for example, Israel has a well-known targeted assassination program. It doesn't even pretend that it doesn't exist. They talk about it openly. This is what we do. Sorry. Um, and 
uh, yeah, I mean, it, that's because this, this is the morality of it. I mean, violence in the Jewish mindset, as long as it's just, is considered part of an ordered society. Like this, this is not some aberration that will, will be done away with in the, in the kingdom of God on earth. This is just the way the world works, right? Until we get to the messianic age in which indeed the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. But Correct. I think I forget who it was, either Yigal Alon or some famous Israeli said, you know, even if the wolf lays down with the lamb, I think I'd still rather be the wolf, right? That's right. <laughs> that, that's his, his joke. Um, okay. Well, dude, I think we solved everything in, in Israel-Palestine politics. Is there nothing, anything else? Nothing, nothing, nothing else to do. Uh, nothing else a, to do. A couple more questions. If, if, we're, if we're doing a glossary, you know, people who are listening to this, they have a good idea of, um, you know, the differences between the blue tribe and the red tribe in America and, and where those tribes would stand on things like, abortion or race or trans or things like uh, immigration or uh, foreign policy, even around sort of Russia, Ukraine. Um, I'm curious if you can illuminate for people uh, who are not familiar with the, 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 the main sort of tension points in Israel at the moment. Uh, like what are the different, you, you brought up, you know, one obviously is what to do about the Palestinians, the two-state solution. You brought up another around kind of religious freedom, the gender segregation. What are the other kind of big tension points or how would you map out the, like what is the equivalent of the, the red blue? You know, that is an amazing question because honestly, none of that shit exists in Israel. If you see what people are actually voting for, there are really two camps. Uh, there's a camp that uh, that votes for for Bibi Netanyahu or parties that love Bibi Netanyahu, and there is a camp. Uh, this is among the Jewish population, which is eighty percent or so of the country. And then there's uh, the camp that absolutely despises Bibi Netanyahu and votes for parties that pursue every single fucking one of Netanyahu's policies, but without Netanyahu. Uh, there is no longer any real left. Uh, you know, Meretz, which was the kind of hard left party, uh, found itself out of the Knesset uh, for the first time ever in its existence. Labor, once the dominant force for decades in Israeli politics, now has, I believe, either five or six seats. Uh, if you ask uh, most Israelis to talk to you about where they stand on a whole uh, wide array of issues, yeah, you may find some very minor differences. You know, some would say, I think we need to be a little nicer. Some would say, I think we need to be a little tougher. But there aren't, you know, kind of like big issues that are that are really dividing the electorate. That's a real fascinating thing, which which led me and I've, I've spent I'm, I'm speaking here in, in these wide, you know, stentorian yeah. sentences and, and generalities. But uh, spending a lot of time with with both of these sides, the only real differentiation that I could find was this. It wasn't necessarily between religious and secular. Uh, there are a lot of people on, on either side of the divide. It wasn't between left or right, because that doesn't exist. Uh, it wasn't even between the Ashkenazi Jews and the Mizrahi Jews we talked about earlier, although there's a lot there to be said, too. Uh, it was really between people who look at Israel and say, look, um, I like that it's a Jewish state. I like that, you know, on... Friday afternoon, every, everything kind of shuts down. I like that uh, we all speak Hebrew and it's important to me and the history and everything. But if you're asking me what the most important thing is, it's that we have a lot of, you know, unicorn startup companies. If you're asking me what the most important thing is, is that we have, you know, way more kick-ass, you know, military technology. If you're asking me what the most important thing is, it's that Noah Kirel wins the Eurovision Song Contest, which she arrived in third yesterday. It's this kind of desire for recognition as just another normal country among other normal countries and every compromise we have to make to make all the icky parts go away that's kind of fine man because our heart is really yes it's a state for jews but let's keep it just at that level and i think that's about a third of israelis now two-thirds of israelis say you know look 
we want a Jewish state, which is not to say that we want a theocracy or, or a state that, you know, really uh, adjudicates and enforces kind of severe religious measures. But if you ask these Israelis what the most important part is, it's like, well, you know, the most important part is to find new and amazing and creative ways to be Jewish. I mentioned this pop star earlier. Uh, his name is Ishai Ribot. Uh, he's one of the biggest stars in Israel. This is a man who makes, un there was even a story about him in the Times recently, which sort of spoiled my fun, but whatever. Um, he makes like these amazing, amazing, amazing uh, pop songs out of, you know, bits from the Talmud, <laughs> out of, you know, common daily prayers. To the people who want Israel to be Jewish, a Jewish state, I think what they want is the freedom to explore new and exciting ways, individual as well as communal, to really kind of build and, and revel in a Jewish identity that feels lived in, that feels genuine, that feels holistic, that feels like it is everything and everywhere. And I think the majority of Israelis uh, are willing to make a lot of concessions uh, for that to happen. If it means, for example, that uh, to do that, we need to have a country in which the Sabbath is observed in some ways, which may inconvenience some people who don't wish to observe a Sabbath. Well, we could find all kinds of real good solutions to make sure no one's rights get trampled, but still that this feeling of difference, uh, that the dignity of difference, as, as the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs uh, liked to call it, uh, is preserved. To say to the world, no, we're actually very different. This is a Jewish state. We don't want to be like everyone else. We want this to be a country in which our ideas, our traditions, our observances are cultivated and experienced in totally different and interesting ways. That to me is a division and that is kind of an existential or metaphysical, not political question. And it's a much harder one to solve. And is that what Netanyahu represents? Is he saying what you just said? Here is the irony of it. I think as a person, honestly, and I know him a little bit, I think Netanyahu actually hates all of that shit. Uh, Netanyahu <laughs> famously recently was photographed on Shabbat eating like this enormous lobster. Like it's right there in the center of the fucking frame. He doesn't really care. However, uh, there's a really, really great Israeli scholar named Avishai Ben Chaim uh, who said to understand this entire, and I'm, I'm putting one more layer on it, I apologize. But to understand it, you actually have to realize there are two Israels. That there's the first Israel, which basically is the Ashkenazi secular educated people who want Israel to be a normal state. And there's the second Israel, which comprises mostly of Mizrahi Jews who came from Arab states, religious Jews, and people who really just want a Jewish state that doubles down on, on the tradition. Uh, because he was so persecuted by, by the first Israel, Netanyahu became the emblem, became the leader, became the sort of, you know, Trump figure, if you will, I was for, right, for the second Israel. So I think the love for him is so intense, mainly because he represents the one who withstands the attack. But personally, does he care about any of this? I will be shocked if deep in his heart of hearts, he thinks about anything else but, you know, fighting off the Iranians and, and making Israel, you know, wealthier and more secure. I don't think he cares about any of this, but here he is. Yeah, I mean, he's not observant, right? I mean, Naftali Bennett was not probably even a little bit. wearing, right, not at all, right? He came from that, that left no. circular world. S speaking of being um, truly Jewish and inconveniencing people by observing Shabbat, I'm going to be inconvenienced after this podcast. It's Sunday that we're recording this. I'm having a phone call with an Israeli company because it's a work day in Israel. And I feel very inconvenienced. They they should change their <laughs> their start of work to be Monday. I, they I, absolutely I should. 
I, well, it's funny. I was talking to a, uh, an Israeli lawyer and he tried to set up a meeting at 8 a.m. on Sunday. I'm like, dude, do you want... no idea. He's like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, whatever. 8 a.m. Sunday. What? You know, you're not working on a Sunday? Um, so, yeah. Maze, yeah. Maze Sunday. Maze the Lord's Day. I don't know. So the, um, you, the dynamic you presented, which is two thirds of the country believes this. How sustainable is that? Like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, do you still think it's going to be too, like, where's this all going? So 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I am incredibly optimistic. 18 months from now, I am absolutely panicking. Um, I think we're heading for a very, very, very big inflection point. Um, I think there are going to be a lot of very good, very conscientious, very proud, very patriotic Israelis. Uh, and I, I am sad to count among them literally my entire social circle. Uh, including my mother, including all my friends growing up, um, who don't really like me a lot. I mean, if they ever did, they like me less and less these days. Uh, I think a lot of them are going to leave. Look, during the last um, kind of 18 weeks or so, you have seen things we never saw before. You saw something along the lines of between 4 and $6 billion uh, being siphoned out of Israel by companies uh, that said, fuck it, uh, we, we don't want to invest any Israeli companies. say We don't want to invest any of our money here or keep any of our money here uh, because, you know, we, we don't like it here. And if this government prevails and this is going to be the Israel, like then we don't want to live here. You saw uh, fighter pilots and senior officers saying, well, we're, we're not serving in reserve duty anymore. These are things that you had never seen before. I think uh, if this uh, if this crisis comes to a head and it looks like it is, um, I think you are likely to see uh, maybe not right now. It's quite possible that this current government will fall. It's quite possible that it will be uh, inherited by a sort of left of center government. Uh, but even if that's the case, it will only push this you know, existential conflict down the line, maybe 18 months, maybe two years, probably not more than that, because eventually Israel needs to decide what kind of country, what kind of state it wants to be. When it makes that decision, I think there's a good chance that a significant portion of, of Israelis who want this to be, again, using short term here or shorthand here, um, a normal country like any other Western yeah. secular progressive country, I think a lot of them are going to leave. I think Israel will take a huge uh, economic uh, and, and you know, to an extent, cultural hit as well. Uh, it probably, if you're asking me uh, how, how much we're dialing back the clock here, we're probably dialing back the clock to say 1998 or seven. Um, There'll be a lot of rebuilding uh, to be done. I think it's possible. But in the long term, I think it would have solved one of its major kind of existential foundational crises of what kind of nation it wants to be. Because we could go much, much deeper on this. But you have to understand that a lot of these, a lot of these issues are, are coming to the fore now because simply Israelis declined to address them for years. The reason we don't have a constitution is when the founding fathers started Israel, they said, Dude, we can't have a constitution. We have the Bible. Okay, so what would be the, the basic laws? Like, I don't know. Can we just please leave it for later? And being a covenantal nation, the beauty of a covenantal nation is that you have to renew the covenant every hundred years or so. America has renewed its covenant four or five times already, right? Israel is going through it for the first time now. When America renewed the covenant for the first time, we fought a pretty bitter civil war over it. I hope Israel's renewal will be yes. slightly more orderly. And, and so just to, sorry, can I just translate a little bit of what Liel said? For starters, Mazes Sunday is like, what is this Sunday thing in Hebrew? And then secondly, 
um, to translate the Israeli, to refuse to do reserve duty is a major deal, right? Because the IDF is mostly a reserve force, right? Every, every it is unheard. Every, it, it literally is, never it, happened. It is, it is on. It is almost like draft dodging, right? Or burning your own passport. It's like slapping it's, it's, the states in the face. It's a hundred. It's a hundred percent worth. It's like slapping your mother in the face. I mean, this is the most right. sacred, imaginable thing. It's like it's it's, it's like. So just it's not like not showing up to the like California Air National Guard or some shit. That's it's like true. literally, it's like it's like cowardice in the face of the enemy type thing. It's a major, it's a major fucking. It's deal. not showing people... up to your wife's birthday dinner. Right, right. And Consequences so, are going to be major. <laughs> I, I mean, you hinted another thing in, in this deal that I think is also part of the equation and also just part of the new Israel, which again I think makes it different than the Israel in the mind of Westerners or diaspora Jews or whatever. You mentioned the, the tech startup thing, right? Israel has done economically extraordinarily well in the past 20 or 30 years. In fact, its GDP per capita is higher than Germany's and Japan's right now, right? And I think a lot of American Jews are historically the conception of Israel. It's like the second world nation. It's kind of struggling. Uh, it's kind of poor. I mean, it's, you go to Tel Aviv, it looks a little run down, uh, and, and, but it, it's not anymore. It, it, it produces more tech unicorns than the entire European Union. Right. Um, like the U everyone goes on about the USA to Israel. It's like less than 4% of the national budget. Israel doesn't actually depend on USA anymore. And, and, and it also all goes to American companies. It is and not all goes to American Israel. companies. It's, it's a subsidy to, 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 to Lockheed that's, Martin. It's not a subsidy right. to Israel. Correct. <laughs> right. And so Israel kind of doesn't need the US, which I think is informing no. its policy, right? Like the US is a lot less, shall we say, kowtowing towards the US. Israel is a lot less kowtowing to the United States than it used to be. And figures like Ben Gavir, just to mention the elephant in the room, feels no need to go explain himself to an Upper West Side synagogue. He doesn't even know they exist and he doesn't care, right? Um, and that's a very different dynamic. A, an Israel that's even ruder than Israelis are, <laughs> are rumored to be, who's kind of like, well, fuck you. We're not depending on the last minute ammunition shipment in the 67 war to save us anymore. That's, that's, right. not, that's, not what, that's not what Israel is anymore. And again, like the world doesn't like that. And I mean, the Europeans definitely don't like that, but they never have because they're, they're anti-Semitic. But, um, you know, that's, that I think changed the dynamic. And I'm sure how that plays, I wonder how that plays internally, because in a recent survey, Tel Aviv was voted one of the most expensive cities in the world. Like, in the running with Singapore and Hong Kong. It's funny, I was looking at real estate because I wanted to buy something somewhere. I was thinking Miami, here, there. Went to Tel Aviv. The prices are through the fucking roof, like worse than San Francisco. It's incredible. I don't know how anyone affords to live there. And, so I, and, I, and it's funny because as income, income inequality is increasing, which it is, and I've heard the story from many Israelis that like, oh, when I was a kid, you know, the sort of kibbutz values of everyday Israelis getting together have been swapped for sort of very consumerist ones, right? And there's kind of a plaint around that. So I, I'm curious how that plays out, because one part of this story, and I'm wondering how much you agree with it, is in this left and right Mizrahi Ashkenazi divide that we're saying, and, and this is true in the US, right? Almost all of the prestige elite institutions in Israeli society, whether it be the Technion or you know the, the biggest startup, typically belong or are largely belonging in that secular liberal world, right? Like the Mizrahi aren't bringing like their own other set of elite institutions, and it's like a battle of elites. It's kind of there, it, it, it's almost like populism in the U.S., in which it's like a reaction against that world in a way. Do you agree with sure. that? Sure, I, I do. I do, but 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 I but I deeply lament it. Look, I, I don't think there's any real reason uh, for for amazing technological innovation, uh, which the country definitely needs and definitely depends for uh, on for its survival, uh, to not coexist uh, with with a you know with a sort of traditionalist. Uh, society or, or a set of ideas. And I think a lot of people uh, in, in the two thirds camp, right, uh, are actually pining for that. They, they don't want to, you know, they don't want a national divorce. They don't want to 
burn everything down. They don't want to say like, there's no animosity uh, as there is here. Like, oh, the New York Times is a leftist. And say, oh, Harvard University. Like, no, Israelis love everything. They're like, oh, oh, the startup company. We love the startup companies. You know, uh, the universities, of course, the Technion, we would love to go there. Uh, there's a real kind of open hearted, moderate, you know, curiosity to say like, why can I live and let live? Why can I have my own, you know, set of ideas and beliefs? But at the same time, you know, be really smart and, and create great innovation is in fact, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people from, from that camp are, I think part of the tragedy is that, that what we're seeing now in, in Israel, and you alluded to it earlier, Antonio, is, is a lot of the uh, importation of, of the American, you know, berserk of, of, of the, of the dumb American political culture of saying, no, it is a bipartisan issue. You're either this or that good or bad and wear a handmade tail costume and march down the street. We never had that in Israel. That is completely, completely, completely foreign. Uh, it will not surprise or shock you at all to know that a lot of this shit is being funded by foreign money, including State Department uh, money, uh, because in in a way, that's, I think, an interest uh, of, of, of external resources to sort of weaken uh, Israeli resolve. But again, in the long term, I am amazingly and incredibly hopeful that we could have uh, everything. We could have a, a, a national ethos that most Israelis believe in and the same amazing innovative spirit uh, that brought us all this great weapons, brought us all these great startups, that brought us all this great TV shows and Netflix. Uh, be, my friend Dan Sinor wrote so eloquently in the book, Startup Nation. In large part, they come from this tradition. I mean, I'll share the anecdote I shared in the, in the group chat about speaking of Netflix shows, the most popular Netflix show in Israel, Fauda, of which every episode I've, I've watched. And it's funny, the, she's gonna hate that I'm even mentioning her, but whatever. The mother of my third child, uh, probably the last Jew on earth to watch Fauda, right? She finally, she finally watched it and she's like, oh, this is an amazing show, it's so cool. And I'm like, oh, great. So you see like, you know, Mizrakis and Korean culture and stuff like, oh, no, 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 they're Ashkenazi. I'm like, mm, I really don't think so. I don't, <laughs> I don't think they uh, learned, this, I don't think they speak Arab, uh, you know, Arabic natively and pass as Arabs because their grandparents came from uh, the Ukraine. I think they're all Arabs, including the writers, which I think are actually all Mizrakis. Like, no, 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 I'm sure they're Ashkenazim. It's like, mm, <laughs> I don't think so, right? So you could, you could have this syncretic culture um, that actually, yeah, right, that produces this. And which, look, look at that, look at that. <laughs> which would be the ultimate triumph over the secular liberal thing, right? Because the assumption is to have the Googles, you have to have this, you know, rootless cosmopolitan sort of whatever bugmanery. And like, actually, no, you don't necessarily have to have that. And that would be like the biggest threat against that ethos. But yeah. Leo, when the one third is, is leaving the country, the, the concern that you have, or when part of them are, uh, what is the language that they use? Is it similar to the, in America, you know, sort of gender equality, racial equality? Like, what is the language that, that they use? Because they're not saying they're anti, you know, Judaism. What, what are they claiming? They're saying you're going to turn Israel into Tehran. Uh, they're saying it's a dictatorship. Uh, it will be Orban. Uh, it will be, you know. So they're, so they're saying democracy? What, what are they for? They're, they're, they're saying democracy, uh, which as Antonio noted before, is a very precious argument since they lost the election. <laughs> uh, they're saying, um, you know, gender equality, because to them, any form of adherence to religious life, which ex uh, understands uh, essential uh, difference between genders and, and has uh, defined gender roles. If you believe that, uh, then you're already on the side of the benighted. Uh, they're saying, um, you know, uh, economic innovation and lack thereof, because again, uh, as soon as you put the, the yarmulke uh, on your head, 
you know, it is well, it's a well-known fact that, that your intellect begins to seep out and you can no longer <laughs> innovate uh, or create anything. Um, tell, tell that to, you know, people like Israel Oman, who is an observant Jew who won the Nobel Prize. Um, they're saying a host of things that don't really make sense on, on, on sort of factual, um, factual observance, but that connote and betray and, and deliver a real sense that I don't want to belittle, uh, of, of, of hurt and fear because truly they really just want a normal country like any other country. And I understand that. That's nothing to mock at. That's nothing to say like, oh, you crazy, lunatic liberal. It's not. It's right. perfectly understandable, except that's not what two thirds of us want. Antonio and I were in another group chat where every few months the topic of Israel comes up thanks to Antonio, because the conversation is about how kind of secular liberalism, you know, via the Internet, just it gets the kids. And so, you know, past every generation, um, the world gets more and more secular and more and more liberal. It's the opposite in Israel. Yeah. That, 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 that's so interesting. The kids, that was, the kids, the kids you, are all right. How do you explain it? Well, again, because because there's 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 an alternative, right? I mean, here in in America, let's say you live in the Upper West Side and and you see these torrents coming for your kids. You know, you see headlines like you know, woman sues JFK Airport after being kicked in the testicles. You're like, wait, what? Like, none of this makes sense to me. Uh, but then what would be the, the, the sort of, you know, ethos in which you, you raise your children? And in Israel, there's a really easy answer to that. It's a deep, inherent, rooted uh, belief in, in these traditions, uh, in these narratives, in these observances. Uh, it's also practiced in a very tightly knit communal setting. Uh, and it's much more appealing and much more lively than putting on a red robe and, and play acting a character from a TV show. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. One of the realizations I had when I was kicking around uh, West Bank, Judea, I'm not going to take a side here, uh, in 2005 <laughs> or six during the Gaza pullout, actually, speaking of uh, times that Israel's kind of blown up. Um, and I, you know, was hanging around there, driving around. And, uh, you know, we uh, we saw some of the uh, Noir Hagavaut, or where we put in the, the Hilltop Youth, um, mm -hmm. which looked like hippie kids, right? Because they've got the peyot and then they've got the little. The yarmulke on, they're dancing, and songs like, oh, look at these little hippie kids. And someone told me, I said, no, 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 these aren't the hippie kids. I mean, they're the hippie kids. But so for those who don't know, these are the hilltop youth. The, these are the hardcore settlers. Like when people think of like, what is the settler, right? They don't think of Ariel, which looks like a suburb. They think of these kids who like take over a, a hill and like put their caravan on it. And then the IDF shows up and kicks them off. And then they throw rocks. And then it's a whole fucking shit show. Um, and because like some of that hippie, like, you know, revolt is actually right. channeled. But not, these are not by default. Right. Yeah. It's also deeply spiritual kids who are into, you right. know, music and art and life nature. And like, this is right. kind of like totally rejection uh, of, of all of this, you know, uh, hyper uh, capitalistic, hyper consumerist trend that they're seeing coming out of Tel Aviv. I totally get it. Right. But the thing is, in the, here, they end up in a fucking apple farm in on Orcas Island, where I used to live in Washington. Mm -hmm. And in Israel, they end up on a hilltop over an Arab village throwing rocks. That's where they That's end up. It. And it's a very different outcome. Um, Welcome to uh, the most interesting place on earth. <laughs> so, Leo, t take someone who you think is really smart, but is on the other side of you on, on these topics. I don't know if that's Dave Remnick. I, I don't know who, who that is. Just to throw a random Peter Beanart. No, I'm joking. <laughs> someone who's really smart. Not Peter Beanart. <laughs> who you respect, if they're on the other side of you in these topics, and they were in this conversation, do, do they think that Netanyahu is going to bring about this sort of Tehran, uh, you know, like situation or like what is if they were in this conversation 
what what is the smart counter? What, what would they be saying to some of these topics? I think it's an amazing question. Uh, and, and again, I, I want to be very clear that uh, some of the of, of the kind of answers that I gave uh, were, were sort of generalized just because, sure. you know, we've been talking for an hour and 40 minutes and we could be talking for another 19 hours and 40 minutes because these are very complicated topics. Uh, I think the counter argument would be several fold. First of all, uh, there will be an argument that Netanyahu is a deeply corrupt politician. Uh, he has currently been served with, I think, 21 indictments and, and not a single conviction, uh, which tells you a lot, I think, personally, about, about the state of his culpability. Uh, they will say that even if he wasn't, uh, he has been in power for uh, you know more than a decade, and therefore just just for you know good good governance sake needs to go. Uh, they would say that he has uh, enabled and and uh, empowered a host of truly unsavory characters, like a gentleman that Antonio mentioned a minute ago, uh, Itamar Ben Gvir, who is this uh, kind of you know um, uh, ardent follower of the late assassinated Rabbi Meir Kahana, uh, who in his youth. Uh, was a full-blown Jewish terrorist who uh, tried to hurt uh, Israel's then Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, and really was a sort of you know rabble rouser who was into you know unchecked violence. Uh, you could argue whether or not he's changed or changed much. I personally have very, 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 very little uh, patience and/or taste uh, for the man in his positions. Uh, they would say that he is uh, selling away the country's. Um, future uh, for the sake of securing his his political grasp on power. They would say that part of this deal that he is striking is uh, paying more and more money and giving more and more authority to the uh, Haredi parties, the, the, the really orthodox parties who uh, are happy to take over all sorts of institutions and therefore um, kind of curb or limit civil liberties like uh, marriage. Because, uh, for example, to this day in Israel, you could, it's very hard slash impossible to get married anywhere but in the rabbinate. Uh, it's still, marriage is considered a, a sacrament, right? A religious rite. Um, and so they would say that all these things are a net negative uh, that are bringing Israel uh, closer to a Hungarian type model, uh, an illiberal uh, Western quasi democracy. Um, I And Ben Gavir is, uh, just, just a note to follow on the theme, he's Mizraki, right? I think he's Kurdish, his story. He's, he comes from Kurdish Jews. I actually, I mean, it's it's a testament to, to the to the great progress Israeli society has made mm -hmm. that I actually don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but I'll yeah. say, look, I, I, I share a lot of these things. I think Ben Gvir is the absolute uh, most demonic and worst manifestation of the of the traditional religious imagination uh, you could imagine. He is someone that I, I truly deeply dislike and wish to see far uh, from from the centers of power. Uh, I also agree that uh, because the relationship with the Haredi parties has been so acrimonious, uh, mainly because these people were persecuted severely uh, by by the left uh, for many, many years. Uh, they have come to see themselves as uh, antagonists of the Israeli political system and, and not as people who are viewed and respected as real partners. Uh, I think all those things could change. Uh, I also personally think that there's a, a very good argument to be made that Netanyahu is someone I have tremendous respect for, uh, and I think his achievements are, are many, and Israel owes him a real debt of gratitude. But I also believe that 10 years is enough uh, for, for any one leader uh, in power. So, so these people definitely have you know some very valid points. And, and then the most valid is the point that I just mentioned. It's perfectly fine to say, look, man, I love Yom Kippur. I love Shabbat. I love you know that we have our own little thing and the language and the history. It means a lot to me. It really does. But, you know, 
doesn't mean more to me than uh, this kind of universalist idea of, you know, of equality. Like, I don't actually buy the Jewish, you know, idea thereof. Uh, I, I, I subscribe to a different uh, set of values. That's completely fine. It just happens to be not what most of us want. Is, is that a good so do you think people are going to leave, Leo? I mean, do you think the threats of leaving and capital leaving, all that, you think that's real? Sure. Yes. yes huh. Which will only accelerate Israel becoming a Jewish state. That's right. I mean, um, and to think, I mean, it, the Israel of 67, people were digging trenches in their front yards because they assumed they get annihilated with their backs against the sea. And mm -hmm. here we are. And, oh, if you don't actually comply with my little political aesthetics that I'm getting on a plane to New York, sorry, bye. It's, uh, it's, it's quite a, a shift. It's a, sign, it's a sign of our success. Hmm. And maybe gearing towards closing, so, some thoughts on the America-Israel relationship. Do you expect it to, uh, you know, se separate going forward and further polarize and um, Israel goes one way, America goes the I, other way? I think that depends mightily on what happens uh, in, in, in November of, uh, of, of this year, next year. Where are we in the cycle? November of next year. Yeah. In, in that a Republican president might be more favorable than the, than the Democrat? Look, I, I think the Democratic Party uh, is completely gone when it comes to, to Israel and Jews. I, I think it is uh, dominated by a, uh, a strong ethos and in many cases also individuals uh, who see Israel as the living embodiment of, of all the virtues uh, that they consider to be great vices. Uh, I don't think that there's any future uh, of, of, of love uh, or even respect between these two parties. And certainly there isn't one uh, so long as the Democratic Party continues the line uh, started by Barack Obama, very much uh, pursued by, by Biden uh, to, to sort of have a, a realignment policy in the Middle East that sees Iran uh, at the center of everything, literally a kind of you know, terrorist state that seeks to annihilate uh, all Jews and Americans anywhere, uh, but particularly Israelis. Uh, for as long as that happened, I, I don't see a lot of real uh, promise of, you know, c cuddling up to the Democrats. Republicans are, uh, you know, uh, are a very different story, uh, and it could go one of many, many ways. Uh, it could go towards someone, uh, and again, it's it's foolish to speculate, but it could go towards some kind of good, at least uh, policy-wise, um, realignment. Uh, it could also usher in a candidate who has truly covenantal views and understands Israel's importance and, and ideas and, and virtues beyond just the kind of realpolitik on the ground. Uh, but we're so early in this in the soap opera that it's almost impossible to tell. Yeah. But what you said about the Democratic Party is, is both true, but it puts most American Jews, most of whom poll as Democrats, by the way, I mean, those who That's identify right. as Jews, um, in a total bind, because and right. I think it's... Um, did, I, did you write the disappearing American Jewish piece for Tablet? I'm I did not, but I but I but I stand by it. <laughs> okay, I, I yeah, endorse yeah. this message. <laughs> right, the, the idea being there that you have to kind of be a almost like a private crypto Jew, right, in terms of your love mm -hmm. for Israel and Judaism, and still be like a good card carrying member of the Whole Foods class in the United States. And um, it's funny uh, as a, as a side note and a teaser. By the way, Alana literally just messaged me saying my piece has been accepted, so it'll appear in Tablet. Um, one of the questions they ask you as a convert, still in the, in the conservative movement, by the way, not even Orthodox, um, is, um, yeah, do you, do you pledge to support the revitalization and the, the growth of, you know, our homeland, the state of Israel, right? 
And that is one of the pledges you make upon joining the tribe, so to speak. Our, our homeland, Miami. Yes. <laughs> yes exactly. <laughs> Whose capital is in Brickell. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yes, I will. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it's funny, but you can't, you can't even say what the Beit Dean would ask you in a conversion uh, conversation publicly. You can't, at least, again, if you wanted to be on the good side of the, of the play dates and brunch invites on the airport. A lot, a lot of American Jews are going to face, are already facing a very, very, very tough choice. You know, I wrote another piece uh, basically saying it's, it's, uh, it, there are two camps now, uh, two teams. And I despise uh, this, this kind of, you know, uh, bifurcated thinking. I think, I think only, you know, zealots, uh, children, and machines think in binaries. Uh, but we have arrived at the moment in time, and it really are two teams. You know, there's Team A, which very generally and vaguely speaking, uh, is very individual-oriented, uh, sees every exchange between individuals as uh, inherently about some sort of power, uh, sees the nation uh, and the family and uh, faith as inherently suspect because they are the scenes of, of oppression. Uh, and then there's Team B, uh, that understands that nation and faith and family are terrible, but the absolute best solution that we have uh, to continue and have uh, kind of a sustainable human future because they are so inherently deeply uh, part of part of our collective DNA. Uh, if you are a member of Team B, uh, then you love Israel, which is literally the embodiment of faith, family, and nation. It is a, it is a, it is one state that is, you know, the, the three of those DNA strands intertwined. Uh, if you are on team A, then Israel is your absolute worst fucking nightmare. And a lot of American Jews, I think, will have to decide what it is that they want to be now. Do they want to be Jews or do they want to be Democrats? And a lot are going to choose Democrats, and that's completely fine. Well, I, as someone else I won't name has said, you know, we've always lost the weakest ones, right? If you actually look at the history of Judaism, it's not it's actually not, this. Antonio, it's not just the weakest one. Look, my, my favorite uh, piece of biblical interpretation was this this notion uh, in the Bible. There's a, there's a really strange word in the story of Exodus. Uh, and Rashi, the famous 11th century uh, Jewish commentator, the, the legendary interpreter of the Bible, is really uh, struggling to understand what this, what this word means. And his uh, answer is amazing. It's like this word means a fifth. What, is, what does it mean, a fifth? He said, it means, it's here to teach us, that only a fifth of all the Jews in Egypt actually chose to leave. In other words, that four-fifths, an absolute majority of Jews, experiencing slavery in Egypt said, you know what, would rather stay here because at least they feed us and at least they give us shelter. We're comfortable here. We don't want to go on any adventures and we don't want to go on any adventures with some weird God and peoplehood and stuff. It's just too much for us. It has always been thus. The fifth are those who err in the wilderness. The fifth are those who found states. The fifth are those who revitalize and renew the covenant in every generation. It's always been the story and I wish it weren't, but here we are. Right. I mean, that was my point. People think of Judaism as like the same body of people kind of marching through time, maybe through genocides. Actually, no, there have been like winnowing down founder effects all along the way, including after the temple was destroyed. Many people just didn't sign up for rabbinical Judaism. It was quite the leap to go from mm -hmm. basically That's a nation state to the. And so there's this massive winnowing down of and it's always been this sort of shelling point to use like a nerd term for, you know, hyper disagreeable kind of neurotics really textually focused people who are just focusing on this very weird religion with all these weird observances. And That's you know, right. people get lost along the way and here we are. Not everyone leaves Egypt as it were. Uh, I want to be, uh, I want to be mindful of, of time. Shall we, yes. uh, shall we, shall we wrap on that? This has been a fascinating uh, sure. overview. Leal, thanks so much for joining the podcast. What a pleasure.
Yeah, thanks, Leo. I know we've taken a lot out of your Sunday. Um, oh my God. It's it's, man, I, I, like there's 7,000 more things that we need to discuss, but that just means we need seven more hours in uh, installments and, you know, and Tony, Eric, and Leo talk about the Jews. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Thanks, guys. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at SecureFrame.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, it's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.